the A-Fire podcast. So here we are in the late summer of 2020, half a year into COVID-19 with some cities in the United States still spiking and others somewhat in control. The question is how should global investors treat the U.S. property markets? How can they invest today and in the future as markets emerge from the damaging effects of this pandemic? I'm talking on the line today with Maggie Coleman. She is a rising leader in this industry and the Senior Managing Director of Capital Markets at JLL. She is responsible for raising debt and equity for global financial institutions, life companies, and special servicers. And she has an excellent macro and micro perspective on our global investment universe. So I'm really glad to uh, welcome Maggie and thank her for joining us on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar, for the warm welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you and the AFIRE members today. I'm hoping that everyone is staying healthy, safe, and productive in their respective corners of the world. I hope so, too, as well. And, and what do you think the global investment picture is right now? Well, Gunnar, it won't surprise you or the listeners that the widespread and pronounced economic disruption has really weighed on overall transaction volume in the first half of this year. We witnessed dramatic declines in the second quarter, in fact. I know the audience and you really like to ground your insights and stats, and our research team is citing that in Q2, overall direct transaction volume actually dropped 55% year over year to U.S. $107 billion. Across the first half of 2020, we saw transaction volume decline uh, 29% globally. And it's not surprising that we saw this due to a dramatic pullback in travel, coupled with mounting uncertainty from March through June that we were all navigating through. Uh, More specifically, the declines in investment volumes that we were tracking uh, really um, fed their way across uh, the regions as Regions were embarking upon the uh, pandemic and the resulting recovery efforts. And you can kind of see those declines track across Asia-Pac, EMEA, and into the Americas. So for Q2, the impact was quite acute for the Americas as we were still transacting through March. We were down 72%. in the second quarter, compared to 37% in all of the first half. Declines in APAC were less significant with activity down 39% in Q2 and relatively on par with the first half of uh, the year at 32%. Uh, I do want to highlight some of the bright spots amidst all of these statistics, and I think it's really important to frame our discussion that we're going to have. One, recently investor sentiment has been picking up and shifting more towards deal sourcing and transactional pipelines are starting to rebuild. So that's all very positive. Markets with higher transparency and deeper pools of domestic capital are proving more resilient, and they're really outperforming. So Japan has been uh, fairly consistent. South Korea has actually had really remarkably steady transaction volume. And in Germany, we've seen inflows actually tick up over the past couple of months into their open-ended funds. 
We're continuing to see rising joint ventures, funds, and platform investments, and we've seen that consistently in Asia over the past couple of months as they've come out of this, and we expect to see that more and more in EMEA and Americas as we move through uh, the pandemic here on the ground. In conversations you and I have had, Maggie, before, there, there, there's this sense that there's two main obstacles that people are trying to work through. One is more of a strategic what does it look like in terms of the economic success of assets that you might consider investing in? And certainly everyone's also concerned about their existing portfolios. But secondly, we have a very real logistical challenge in terms of how are you going to invest in a building that you can't actually see? So how are you seeing how are you seeing investors kind of deal with let's let's start with the logistics issue, the, the, the kind of practical issue. How are you seeing investors kind of work through that? Well, you know, it's it's actually transitioned, I think, from being sidelined, as I mentioned earlier, and somewhat frozen to really working to find creative solutions to get transactions done um, as we've worked through this um, throughout the world. You know, we have seen investors uh, in the last, call it three to four weeks, start to travel, although that's quite limited. But we've had a couple of investors who are very keen on particular markets or particular opportunities get on planes and, and start to travel again. But I think what's been really interesting are the groups that have said, you know, they're not going to be able to travel, but are looking for new partners from asset managers here in the U.S. We've had groups that have bid and actually won transactions with new partners um, who are asset managers here, who are their boots on the ground, if you will. Other investors are trying to find um, you know, entree points to get due diligence completed or outsourced within the region that they're looking to invest. And so, you know, here in the U.S., we've had uh, inquiries from some of our uh, global investors in Korea and in, throughout Asia look to try and outsource that due diligence piece in order to get their investment committees comfortable to um, to transact. So, you know, I think just trying to create that sense of presence in the markets where they want to be transacting, um, that's certainly something that we've seen kind of grow as we've been working through this. Uh, we have had a couple of transactions close sight unseen. Um, it's been rare, but that's usually been, you know, one of the profiles that have been uh, really the darling, if you will, of uh, the last uh, couple of months being industrial, long let, strong investment grade tendency to uh, one of the you know major e-commerce uh, type uh, companies. And so, you know, a market where an investor was already familiar when that asset comes up, they've been uh, transacting without travel. Um, and then I think the, the, the other piece that's been really uh, a focus is um, niche strategies around private credit or debt that, you know, allows an investor, again, to partner with uh, a, a, an entity here that has boots on the ground and, and can start to size up those opportunities while they're uh, logistically challenged still. So there is investment going on, uh, even though there are, it, maybe it's harder, but everyone is kind of that is determined to invest is getting around it in, in various creative ways. What sectors, what kinds of assets are people interested in investing in? What is the strategy? Well, the, you know, the term that I'm going to use right now is one that I think has been prevalent 
you know, throughout really pre-COVID, uh, when you talk to some of the investors who are very active inter and intra-regionally from an investment standpoint, but um, defensible strategies. Uh, here, when we are working with uh, investors from Asia-Pac and Europe coming into the U.S., you know, that has meant industrial multifamily for the most part. And when you look at where the bright spots that um, we've encountered over the past call it four to six months, industrial has certainly garnered the bulk of attention. Um, investment activity was was down for the first half in, in the um, U.S. However, it was only down by 13%, which is quite remarkable when you talk about those logistical challenges that you mentioned. A lot of the activity supporting industrial centers around, obviously, the drive to potentially bring back supply chain. And so there is a sense that supply chain, the supply chain is going to be disrupted, creating new opportunity, but more so the uh, just the volume and the momentum around e-commerce has really driven uh, investment uh, allocation to uh, the industrial sector. So most of the deals that we have been seeing transact in the last couple of months have been industrial and well-located, call it tier one markets or tier two markets, uh, assets that are distribution focused, long let to those e-commerce, 3PL or distribution uh, companies that have been really the beneficiaries of this work from home and uh, shelter in place environment where we've all had to, you know, really increasingly rely online for most of our goods um, as we've uh, managed through this. So many people that that I speak with across AFIRE are talking about the, the impact of COVID from the standpoint of accelerating existing trends. And, and that certainly seems to be the case for logistics and certainly seems to be the case for retail um, in terms of our relationship to retail has it seems to have fundamentally changed, at least for the near term. But a lot of people are speaking about it as a long term trend. Would you say that investors uh, that you're interacting with are, are thinking that way as well? Absolutely. They see industrial logistics as a long term uh, trend, long term strategy. And I think we're seeing uh, percentage wise allocations to industrial tick up from a general portfolio, you know, across portfolios. And that's the case, interestingly enough, not only for the large institutional investors who've been looking at the sector for some time, but it's also the case with many of the large uh, family office and high net worth capital that, you know, does tend to transact across borders. So that sector of the investor universe is also looking at industrial as a, you know, long-term uh, strategy for both capital preservation, for uh, income, as well as um, just overall uh, performance. So it's it's certainly one that I think people investors are highly focused on in the long term. Um, interestingly enough, another sector that has ticked up in terms of interest and focus, and I think our investors are really highlighting for the long term, is data center. And that, again, has been, I think, a beneficiary and really driven by the momentum around uh, e-commerce and the levels of which you know people are transacting online. We've had a number of investors start to really think about how to incorporate data, strat data center strategy, either in their real estate portfolio or in their infrastructure um, bucket as well. And so that's an area that I think you're going to see and hear 
more on, and more commentary around um, as we, um, you know, see what unfolds here in Q3 and Q4. There's been a growing level of, of discussion uh, around the kind of shifting of, of sources of capital uh, internationally and the increase in family office activity, which you just referred to. Can you give a sense of, of how much that is growing, how big that market is becoming, and how you think that is going to alter the investment picture uh, over the next few years, e- even when we get beyond COVID? Sure. The, the, the family office environment, you know, globally has always transacted in the sector. We've worked directly with family office. We've certainly seen a number of uh, foreign investors uh, set up entities that are essentially syndicators into tapping into that high net worth and family office capital within their uh, local regions. I think we're going to see more and more of that volume tick up. When we look across the, the the spectrum of global capital in the near term, you know we're seeing we're expecting some big uh, movements in family office and, and private capital um, into the sector. I think we're going to. We're looking heavily at that right now out of um, Asia, uh, particularly Japan. We're looking at that um, Middle Eastern ultra high net worth capital. And we're talking, you know, in terms of, you know, call it hundreds of hundreds of billions of dollars that we expect to be moving into the sector um, from this uh, source of capital that has largely, again, been focusing on real estate through funds, a bigger percentage of that we really expect to be uh, allocated to direct investments. So it should be you know, quite interesting to see how that unfolds here as we work through this, um, this new uh, horizon that we're all uh, embarking on. So you're seeing still a lot of uh, institutional family office, sovereign wealth uh, capital interested in U.S. real estate. Uh, how much of an impact, if any, are you seeing from uh, certainly, you know, the, the the discussion and the headlines and the general story is about a kind of general uh, slowing down of international trade, uh, especially with China. But is there, do you see any ongoing impact on the real estate market? How do you think that's going to infect investor appetite for U.S. real estate? We see this as a period of time where we're going to see increased appetite for U.S. real estate from that family office sector. The U.S. market continues to be one of the most transparent. We're hearing from uh, investors across, you know, Latin America, across Asia Pac, as I mentioned, who have not been invested in the U.S. previously, who really see this market as a source of wealth preservation. And um, I, I think so. So, from my perspective, it's going to be. Uh, an area where we're going to see growth and and con- and a continued uptick in capital coming in uh, from overseas here in the U.S. Well, that's that's certainly good news uh, for an association that's focused on international capital coming into the U.S. real estate. So you've just made me very happy. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> when you you think about where non-U.S. investors are looking in the U.S., are there particular markets they're interested in beyond the 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 the, the traditional kind of core gateway markets? Uh, uh, that they're focused in on, or are they really still focused on on core? The recent volatility across the economies have, I think, driven a renewed interest in core. I think you saw at the end of the cycle pricing get very competitive for you know for core office and, and other core sectors, multifamily. I think there is now a 
a sense that there is a retrenching of interest in, in core markets and in core assets uh, for some of those you know, reasons that I mentioned previously relative to uh, flight to quality, flight to safety. The you know, interesting thing I think about the U.S. markets where we're seeing foreign interest is really driven by sector. So, you know, when we talked about the industrial landscape, we spent quite a bit of time, I think, in the last 24 months working with uh, some of the larger institutions as well as uh, some of the private capital in helping to understand what is tier one and tier two industrial markets, because many of those are markets that are not top of mind for foreign investors when they're in home country and um, they have to really understand and educate their uh, investment committees on how to get comfortable with those. So when we look at, you know, the landscape of interest, I think it's really sector driven. So, you know, markets that are really strong uh, corridors in uh, e-commerce and, and industrial. For example, you know, I'm in Chicago, which is a tier one industrial market, but you look at markets like Columbus, Ohio, and Indianapolis, Indiana, and we're actually seeing interest in some of those uh, assets that I described previously from foreign investors because they understand this, uh, this, this part of the country is now, you know, critical to that uh, e-commerce supply chain. So, you know, uh, so that's one, one example, I think, of a broadening of the depth and breadth of uh, interest across the U.S. marketplace. I think you know, we certainly have seen a, a broadening of interest in the multifamily landscape and those markets that have been really designated the moniker of, you know, innovation markets. So, you know, not only Seattle, but Portland, you know, Nashville, uh, Austin, Dallas, Denver, all are top of mind for investors who are looking in multifamily. Uh, and further, the sectoral shifts that are happening in the U.S. have driven that capital looking for multifamily exposure to some of the you know, more favorable uh, states from a tax perspective, Florida and Texas being um, two that you know, garner a lot of attention right now. So the, the, the interest is across the markets, and it's really driven, I think, by sectors and understanding what are going to be uh, the major players for those sectors going forward. What are you most concerned about? There's certainly a lot to be concerned about in, in terms of COVID uh, and uh, the kind of unrest that, that has followed that over the last uh, few months. Um, as you look at kind of long term, what do you think the, uh, the international investor is most concerned about? It's a great question, Gunnar. I think, you know, my initial reaction, you know, what I'm most concerned about is obviously the, you know, just general health and safety of, you know, the people who I work with and um, people who are in our industry and, you know, getting back to a pace and a uh, environment where we can work, but do so safely and do so efficiently. And uh, I think a lot of that is, you know, still um, part of this uncertainty that we're all feeling. So um, that's certainly, you know, top of mind uh, for me. But I think from an investor's standpoint, you know, the, the I think where, where I see most of the concern is just in not knowing kind of the time frame. So we've obviously had uh, some stops and starts for um, getting back to uh, uh, like I said, uh, uh, what was considered a normal pace and, and rhythm of, of work and, and in social interaction. And then uh, we've seen uh, stops and starts. So 
that kind of uncertainty for going on for an indefinite period of time is something that I think many investors are, you know, scratching their heads and and trying to get their arms around. Those strategies that I mentioned earlier with respect to creating new partnerships and and um, you know trying to get a pseudo boots on the ground, if you will, I think are measures to try or are methods to try and uh, create some certainty around that that you know, not knowing of how long this environment is going to go on so that we can create new methods and new systems in place to, to get deal flow and transactions back up and running. Certainly, with all the uncertainty we're experiencing, a lot of people talk about uncertainty historically as being a time where people and crisis being a time when people come up with new solutions, new innovations and, and new ways of doing things that perhaps even work better than what we had before. So to flip the question I just asked you before, what are you most excited about? Uh, what are you seeing? Where are your signs of light that you're seeing amidst this darkness? I think it's been a real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's been a very much wave of openness within the real estate you know, sector and community to brainstorm around these ideas. And I think that's been really refreshing. And we've got this dialogue running that we're all in this together and trying to come up with these creative solutions. And I think, you know, when you're, when we were mid-cycle head down, it was, you know, transaction, transaction, transaction. I think this has been a period of connecting with investors and clients and um, other colleagues in a really interesting way around finding these solutions. So that's been, I think, one of the the bright spots, if you will. Um, I also think that the the heightened level of just technology as a means of communicating, you know, the Zoom calls and WebEx calls and Microsoft Teams calls and all of these methods for connecting, um, you know, virtually through video conference have really uh, gained favor. But I also think they've really created connections with, um, you know, uh, investors overseas that when we would uh, get on the road to go visit, you can't, you know, certainly cannot replace that you know, human interaction, but they've certainly done a really good job of, you know, supplementing that kind of um, rapport building and just, you know, continued opportunity to gain trust and, and confidence in, in the individuals that you work with and that you're talking to relative to their strategies. Um, so I've found that to be a really, you know, refreshing and um, a, a, a real bright spot. I think when the pandemic started here in the U.S. and we all started, you know, engaging in this manner. It was so new to all of us to really be using it day in and day out. And now it's, I think, become just one more channel for us to to utilize as we communicate um, through this. And, and you know, I think there will be a place for it when we can all get back on planes and, and start traveling again. As I said, it's not going to replace the human um, interaction and getting and, and seeing and touching and feeling the assets. Um, but I think it certainly will have a new place for how we interact and do business. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, Maggie. I think you're right. We've we've actually run out of time here, so we're, we're going to have to close this out. That was uh, 20 minutes. That wow. was 20 minutes. It goes really quickly. <laughs> uh, but I, I really want to thank you for uh, sharing your insights and your ideas today. Well, it was a pleasure, Gunnar, and um, we're just uh, excited about uh, 
you know, the activity that we've seen and, and, and again, just hoping to highlight some of the bright spots in uh, amidst some of the uncertainty. And before we close out this podcast, I wanted to make sure we took some time to thank our underwriters, Prologis, JLL, and Holland Partners, who make it possible for AFIRE to provide programming such as these podcasts. Thank you. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. This is Gunnar Branson from the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for listening.